Hey, God is so good, isn't he? I have had just about the most amount of fun that anyone can have over a weekend. I'm sure it should be illegal. Um, you know, God is just so good, isn't he? Well, one of you agree with me. Um, he really is good. Um, one of the things I love about my job is that I get to travel uh, to many different nations and see what God is doing. And it helps give you a perspective when you realize that in South Africa, God is doing the same stuff he's doing here. In Europe, in places in Europe, God is breaking out in incredible ways. People are still getting saved. Contrary to popular belief, the church is going to be glorious and is beginning to get a whole lot more glorious. Contrary to popular belief, Islam loses, God wins. Am I in the right church? Okay, I'm going to preach myself happy even if you don't get happy, all right. Um, God is on the move. Aslan is walking across the face of this earth and his roar is louder than any other. It really, really is. And we are living in days where God is so eager to bless us. People often ask me if I want to live you know, in the times of Smith Wigglesworth or Catherine Kuhlman. Absolutely not. Because that was a taste of former glory. Latter glory is going to be a whole lot better. And that what we're going to see in church in these next few years and, and, and uh, in the next two or three decades is a, a sweeping up of the purposes of God in the church to extend the kingdom across the face of the earth. I believe with all of my heart that this season of understanding transition between church and kingdom and kingdom and church is so important that God has not called you to simply be part of a community that simply blesses your family and your dog and the picket fence in the nice home that you have, but actually it gives something to you that radically transforms the world around you. That was a whole lot to say again. <laughs> I do believe this. I believe that what God is looking for is the priesthood of all believers, again, taking responsibility for their locality, for their area of influence, and releasing the very dynamic power of the kingdom in it. That you and I are called to be atmosphere shifters. That you and I are called to be nation changers. That where we go, we carry the very inherent power of God. The Bible says the kingdom of God does not come through observation, saying there it is or there it is. The kingdom of God is in you. It also says that the kingdom of God is not in word, it is in power. Do you realize what's on the inside of you? Man, last night I spoke a little bit about... um, living on the right side of the cross, really, understanding that we are a new creation, that everything has changed, that we get to live in the full weight of what Jesus purchased for us at the cross of Calvary, that the cross is not simply a place where we come and grovel, but it is a place where we pick up our promise for resurrection life. That when Jesus says, pick up your cross, he's not saying, pick up the spirit of martyrdom. He's saying, pick up the promise of eternal life. Man, when you live like that, everything changes. And I believe we're in a season of acceleration. I just want to ask Joy just to come and share the word that God had given her during worship because I believe it's important for this church and for this locality. So come, Joy. Why don't you welcome her as she comes? Thanks, guys. Um, during worship, I could just like feel some water around my ankles, and it just sort of like came up higher and higher and higher. And um, I felt like God was saying that He's accelerating us in terms of being in the river, being in the Ezekiel River, and that the water is accelerating at a faster pace than we are thinking of. And um, I saw a clock and the hands were just going around really, really fast. And I felt like God wanted to change our perspective of the time that we're living in, the natural time, 
uh, that we're living in. And like for some of you, you have sort of like five-year plans for your life or certain sort of like steps that you think you're going to take and they're going to take this amount of time. And I feel like God is accelerating that time so that it happens a lot more quickly. And he's just doing something in the spirit. And I felt specifically like there are some people that are meant to be like learning languages and that that's going to happen like with a spiritual download that you're going to supernaturally be able to learn the language at a faster rate to do what God has called you to do in the kingdom. So I just feel like there's just a general acceleration on people and you're to expect God to do things more quickly. And I had that verse about the plowman overtakes the reaper and uh, just that that's happening. Thanks. Come on. If you agree with that, say yes. Uh, Before I get into my preach, I really feel like the Lord has spoken to me about Glasgow becoming an influential city in Great Britain. And I'm intentionally using the word Great Britain rather than the United Kingdom because I believe it's time to redeem the redemptive and prophetic promises over this nation that it is called to be great. That Great Britain was never meant to be a dying empire. It was meant to be an empire that extended the kingdom. And it is great. And I'm South African in saying that. You're not great at rugby though. But I believe there's something about Glasgow that God is wanting to highlight. And I felt particularly in the area of entertainment, media and culture that God was going to make this a capital in uh, Great Britain in terms of influencing and setting trends. Amen. And I feel like there is something about the media, creative arts, the whole dynamic of um, uh, uh, creativity that God was wanting to anoint to be trendsetters in Great Britain. And if you're involved in any of that kind of world, I'd love you to stand. I know I prayed last night for you, but I believe God wants to really release a fresh sound, a new sound, a sound that begins to set the trend, a sound that begins to set the culture rather than respond to the culture. All right, that's what it means to be forerunners. It means that we make the way easy for others to follow. It means that we run ahead of the pack and sometimes it's lonely, sometimes we, we're doing stuff that's difficult. I believe God is releasing a sound to musicians that will not be copied, that will not be simply uh, taking its reference point from the world, but it will be original. The enemy is not in any way original. He cannot come up with an original idea by himself. He copies everything that the Father does and distorts it. And God is wanting to raise up entertainers and cultural influencers who begin to come up with original ideas from heaven that begin to shape and change things dynamically. I've been saying this and I'm going to say it again. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth. Not just truth in the Bible. He leads us into all truth. He wants to release people with brains that is humongous. I was saying to Andy, one of the comments that Andy made to me was that my preaching has gone up a gear and uh, it's almost a whole lot more theological. And if you know my story, you know that I can go to university, I've got no degrees behind my name, I've got nothing that I could ever fall back on other than the grace and mercy of God. Good place to be, by the way. But I've begun to understand the goodness of God in downloading an academic ability to wrestle with text. And I'm reading books that I could never have read a year or two years ago because I didn't have the capacity, because I've never been to university, to develop the discipline of learning. In fact, I'm not a logical thinker. I'm a creative type. Not that all creative types aren't logical thinkers, by the way. But do you understand what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit can download and release stuff to you that you could never learn by yourself or do by yourself because he's the originator of all good things. And so if you are called in that arena, you know you're called to shape culture, you know you're called to shape particular aspects, in in, in particular in the entertainment world. And I feel like there's going to be some kind of studio or something that's going to be built 
in Glasgow by Hollywood Consortium that's going to mark a whole new dynamic of, of influence in, in the kind of um, entertainment world. I feel like in the next two years, that will be a sign for you that God is going to unlock and lift the profile of this city. So if that's you, just quickly stand. You know God's called you to shape culture and shape things in the... Great. Susie, you should be standing, my dear sister. This is for you. Stand up, Susie. You're called to shape culture. I'm going to prophesy over you in a moment. Just lift up your hands just very quickly. I don't want to take too long because I do want to preach. Hey, hey. Woo. The guy with the black shirt on, God's hand is on you in a very powerful way. You, you have got an incredibly sharp mind. You are a student of culture. You are able to assess where, where culture is at, and you're able to comment and provide a commentary on it. And the Lord is going to use your voice, even in the halls of parliament and places of influence, to provide commentary and to provide opportunity to shape culture in a powerful way. There is swirling color around you. There is musical notes around you. There is just an incredible flow of creativity that is going to shape people. I even see a label across your forehead that's going to be your own in terms of the company or the thing that you do that God is going to provide a platform for because you are called in the high levels of influence in the acting world, in the world of entertainment to shape and to to bring. I, I see script writing. I don't know what it is that you've even studied, but I see script writing. I see you writing prose and writing stuff that is going to begin. It's like a C.S. Lewis anointing that God wants to release on you that begins to shape a whole nation in a powerful way. And God's breaking off some limitations around you and some small-minded thinking. And God says to you, I'm going to connect you with influencing shakers and movers in the city so quickly in the next three to four months that you're going to be surprised at the kind of audience and influence you'll have. And so God's hand is on you, my brother. You're called, you're called to be out the box. Don't color on the inside of the lines. It gets you too bored anyway. God's called you to move into a whole new dynamic. And so God's hand is on you in a significant, significant way. I see some kind of influence and connection for you in the uh, university, in, in with heads of department, I see you connecting with them in order to release favor in and over students. That well, there's a harvest for you there, and God is going to use you very significantly. I hope this is making sense to you. God's hand is on you dramatically. So, Father, bless this man. Father, I pray for every person standing right now. I thank you for your anointing right now in Jesus' name. I release actors. I release writers, artists, recording artists in Jesus' name. I release studios and equipment for studios right now in the name of Jesus. I prophesy a transfer of heavenly ideas and sounds that would shake and shape nations in Jesus' name. God, I ask for the prophetic DNA of worship to be released in the sounds. In Jesus' name, heavenly, heavenly sounds in Jesus' name. So I bless these people who are standing right now, and I say, come into your destiny. I say, God wants to set you up for success, not failure, in Jesus' name. And I unlock that right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you sit down? Amen. Susie, just stay standing just for a moment. I told you I wanted to prophesy over you. I see you at the head of pioneering a work amongst young people between the ages of 15 and 25. That God is going to begin to download ideas, plans, and policies that will begin to pick up the very broken of the broken off of the streets of Glasgow and bring them into destiny. For you're a woman who has an ability to call greatness out of people. You're a woman who has an ability to see the best where no one else can see the best. And the Father says to you today, you've limited yourself because you say, God, I don't have the skill. I don't have the qualifications. But the Father says, I'm the one who qualifies you. I'm the one who releases skill upon you. 
And I'm going to bring you into a place in these days where you are going to connect with influential financiers and benefactors because you're going to establish an NGO, a non-government organization, a trust of some sort that is going to gather up the broken and the hurting and bring healing to them. I literally see homes, I see houses, I see properties like a safe house for broken women and even unwed mothers. And I see you at the forefront of establishing something that will begin to lift people out of despair and place them in families. And so the Lord says to you, daughter, it's time to begin to dream some big dreams. It's time to begin to dream some big dreams. He has a plan for you that is going to shake and shake and shape this place in a powerful way. I feel the Lord says to you, this is quite funny. I feel the Lord says to you, you to uh, uh, get a new wardrobe ready. Because I, I thought you'd like that one. Because I see you connecting with businessmen in the boardrooms of, of, of influential businesses. And I see you saying, give me your millions. Give me your millions. God, God really wants to know. Because he's finding to be faithful with the little, Susie. He's finding to be faithful in the secret place. And now it's a time where he's going to bring you into the public place to have influence. And God says to you, you're supposed to, in this next season, you have to write things down. You have to begin to think about policies and how to shape and release and change culture on a much higher level. Because you've got some ideas that you think are just dreams. That God says is going to be the very foundation of policy. Particularly in the area of men and women who come from divorced backgrounds and are involved in crime and gangs. God is going to give you favor in that area. And so get ready, God's hand is on you, and you can dream big. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> hey, hey, we, I want to just share some stuff today. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. I want to talk a little bit about shame-free worship. If I were in a Pentecostal church back home where I had some of my black brothers with me, I'd call this message, Getting Your Crazy Praise On. And so because I feel at home, I'm not going to talk about shame free. I'm going to talk about getting your crazy praise on. People have often said to me, and I said this yesterday, I'm going to say it again. People have often said to me, Julian, I just am concerned about emotionalism. Are you, are you, are you, are you sure you should preach this way? Are you sure you should do this emotional stuff? And I said to them, I, you know, I agree we should be concerned about emotionalism. But in the UK... That's the last thing we need to be concerned about. We need to release some more emotions. We need some dads who are willing to cry. We need some dads who are willing to spin around wildly at the success of their sons and their daughters. Do you know when the disciples came back to Jesus and said, look how we've cast our demons, look at how we've healed the sick. It says that Jesus, in that hour, he rejoiced. That word rejoiced means he came under the power of a violent emotion and he spun around wildly over the victory of his disciples. Jesus didn't just do the Pentecostal two-step shuffle. He went crazy. He got his crazy praise on at the thoughts of his disciples bringing breakthrough in the kingdom. So if you're concerned about emotionalism, Heaven is full of it. Let's have a look at John, I'm sorry, Luke. Did I say John? Sorry, I meant Luke. You should know that. You're all prophetic now. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. It's a well-known scripture. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner, a.k.a. she's a prostitute. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. 
Second moneylender had two taxes, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not repay, he cancelled the debt of both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. I love this turn of events in the next scripture. Then turning toward the woman. Can you imagine the kindness of Jesus as he looked at this woman? Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I just love the story. It is jam-packed full of little nuances, full of little revelations that if you get it, you will get your crazy praise on by the end of this session. You know, one of the things I've noticed in this culture, can I be so bold as to comment on some of the things I've begun to notice over three and a half years in this culture, is that this culture celebrates failure. That we have an ability to celebrate and prize failure, and the result is not many people are willing to step up and to step out just in case they fail. One of the things that fascinated me when I first came to this country was the number of preachers who would get up and apologize before they've even preached and not given me the opportunity to evaluate or weigh whether it needed an apology or not. And this culture is dominated by what I call a guilt and law-driven culture. It's very closely connected to a shame and performance-driven culture. Now, I come from a country in South Africa where shame is the way that you control people. And so if you don't do something right, we put shame on you. I remember growing up in our family, and uh, one of the things that we were told, thankfully my parents have repented of this now, but one of the things we were told is what happens in the Adams family stays in the Adams family. Some of you know what that's like. And when you do something wrong, shame comes in. In my culture, we're so fascinated with shame. I'll never forget when I first came to this country and I saw a little baby. And I looked at this little baby and I went, oh, shame. Now, in South Africa, that means, oh, cute. And I remember some mother looking at me going, give my baby back. There's nothing wrong with it. We're so into shame that that's what we do. And I remember growing up, having to do the right stuff. You know, I grew up in Charismania, right? Uh, charismatic churches, sorry. Um, and so I know what it's like to have to dress up and look good, smell good, do the hallelujah, wave the hands, worship like you're kind of into it. But on the inside, you're breaking down and you are covered in shame and guilt. In this country... The, the, the direct parallel is guilt and law. And so one of the most amazing phenomena that I find in UK culture is your ability to cue. <laughs> that doesn't happen in Africa. Everybody gets right in there, get out the way, I'm getting in. But we all stand and it's all neat and nice and predictable. And Lord Jesus help you if you overstep the mark on health and safety. It's just game over then. And everything's so neatly ordered and everything's so neatly accounted for and all of the variables are sorted out just in case something goes wrong, we have to be in control. And I've noted in this culture that when you live like that, when you do something wrong, the direct result is you live under guilt. You live under shame. And despite the fact that God has forgotten your sin, despite the fact that God has set you free, it's really difficult then for you to come and worship him in an abandoned way. And in, in traveling, I noticed many people talk to me and say, Julian, the problem is the minute I start worshiping, images flash back from past sins. 
It makes you flash back from things I did wrong and the shame and the guilt comes over me that I feel I cannot approach God. And we live in a place where very often our performance is prized externally at the expense of inward transformation. It's the root of the religious spirit. It's that we've got it right on the outside, but on the inside, like Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're nothing but stinky corpses. And I believe God's wanting to bring a fresh wave of radical worshipers who do not live under the curse of shame and guilt, but are able to come into a place of intimacy and radical abandonment before him without the weight of past sins holding them so that the intimacy and the radical encounter comes from a place of purity. That God is wanting to restore worshippers who are like laid down lovers. Worshippers who come to him not because they have to, but because they want to. The people of God in Deuteronomy were cursed by God because they served him without joy. The glorious duty, sorry, the, the, the glorious duty of a Christian is delighting in the one that we love. And this woman It's just so radical because she explains what it's like to be a crazy worshiper. She explains what it's like. She demonstrates what it's like to come into a place and break every protocol, every rule, everything that was supposedly expected of her, every moment of shame that should have come upon her. She breaks through that because she sees the one that she loves. And there's something about our heart and our affection being shaped and stirred and moved. I cannot be quiet in his presence. And if I am quiet, it's because I'm overwhelmed at his beauty. I know for some of us being undignified is lifting up our hands. But God wants to break something over us that moves us into a place where worship is all about him. Not about style, not about the latest city, but about a heart attitude that has been positioned, a heart attitude that has been apprehended by the affections of heaven. And this woman is so incredible because she does something that breaks open a whole atmosphere to the demonstration of the grace of God. And there's some incredible nuances, and I must preach very quickly, so I'm going to track very quickly over the next few moments. There are incredible nuances here, because what's happening here is that this is not a comfortable meal. The Pharisees have invited Jesus to test him a little bit earlier. They accuse him of being a wine-bibber, a drunkard, and a glutton, and one who entertains sinners. And so this Pharisee then invites Jesus, and what would happen in those days is that there were two compartments in uh, the Pharisee's home. There was the VIP compartment, where all the guests of honors came, sat down and ate, and they got to eat the best of the best. And then there was the riffraff department, the department where, or the room where um, all the lawbreakers, the sinners would come in. And the reason why they were allowed in was that they got the leftovers of the meal and the Pharisee got to walk around with great piety saying, look, I'm even feeding the poor and the lawbreakers and the sinners. It was a sign of the Pharisaical spirit. You see, just because you feed the poor doesn't mean that you're not religious. And so they would, they would feed the poor and all the leftovers. These guys would have amazing, yummy roast lamb with garlic and rosemary. It's been slow roasted for five hours. Help me, Jesus. And then whatever was left over, they passed through to the other room. And so this woman would have been seated there looking in at what was happening. This is why Jesus is so radical, because when he throws a dinner party, he invites sinners, tax collectors to sit in the VIP section. That's what makes the kingdom subversive. It's totally upside down. Man alive, and when you get that, that he starts with the broken and the hurting, we're all qualified then. And we get to sit at the VIP table on top of it. Man, that's a good point. 
And so this woman would have been looking in and seeing what was happening, and Jesus comes into the home, and he has not offered any of the normal protocol that should have been offered. So, you know, in, in our day and age, the equivalent would be if I knocked on Angie and Teresa's house door, they would go, Julian, oh, it's so lovely to see you. I'm so glad you, yeah, come on in. And as I walk in, Angie would say, I need to take your coat. Let me take your coat and put it up for you. Please come through to the lounge. And then uh, if Andy was really nice to me, like really nice, he'd say, you see that lazy boy with the extra massage chair thingy? You can sit in that today. Because he gave me the place of honor. And if he was extraordinarily nice, he'd say to me, I've been waiting for your visit, and so I specially imported a bottle of red wine from Cape Town that is smooth as velvet, and I'd love to give you some. Would you like some? That would be an amazing host. And I would come back again. But what's happening here is not that Jesus is not afforded any of the courtesies that he should have been because the Pharisee is wanting to test him. The Pharisee is making it clear, we don't actually like you. It's kind of like going up and being invited to a dress-up party. You dress up in your best outfit and you rock up and you're the only one who's dressed up. That's what's happening here. And this woman is looking at this and she's outraged. Now, I think she probably bought this alabaster ointment jar because she wanted to give it to Jesus as an offering to him. But she's so overwhelmed at the unbelievable disregard and lack of worship for Jesus that she can't help herself but break through the crowd, break across protocols because she's not supposed to touch a man. She's not supposed to even look at a man in public. And she walks through all of these men, gets to Jesus, and breaks this expensive jar of ointment upon his feet. And as she does this, she lets down her hair. Now, you need to understand that when that woman let down her hair, there would have been a gasp in the room because women never let down their hair in public. It is a way of shaming yourself. It is a way of bringing dishonor upon yourself. And when she did that, there would have been an intake of breath. I can't believe she's just done that. Because in Jewish, in Jewish antiquities, if you read some of the commentaries around this, there were some women who were so pious that they never, ever let down their hair, even when they were at home. Because it was a sign of their glory. It was a sign of their piety. It was a sign of their togetherness. And when you let down your hair, you brought shame and guilt upon yourself. And so this woman is in this context. And she can only do what Simon could never do because she's radically in love with Jesus. Have you ever been in that worship moment when that person sitting next to you gets their crazy praise on and they're shouting and screaming and doing their thing. I was in a meeting once, help me Jesus, and there was this guy at the back. It was one of those seeker-sensitive meetings. And I was asked to preach the gospel and uh, I was under the pressure of the seeker-sensitive meeting and the guy is going berserk at the back. Hallelujah, Jesus, I love you. that crazy? And I'm just like, sweet Jesus, he's cramping my style. <laughs> so I lean over to the pastor and say, who is that dude? And the pastor says, oh, that guy's been set free from a long-term drug addiction to heroin, and he can't help himself but worship Jesus like that. He's been clean for many years. As I got back to my chair, I felt the Lord say to me, the only difference between you and him is he's more aware of the grace he's received than you have. That crazy praise is the appropriate response. (laughs) You see, the religious spirit will dupe you into thinking that what I look like externally is more important than what's happening internally. And this woman looks at this Pharisee who does not offer the appropriate courtesy of washing the hands of Jesus, washing his feet. And she does what he could never do by radically expressing her heart to him. I was in a worship meeting the other day. Oh, Lord Jesus. 
I've got a thing against flag wavers. Please forgive me if you're a flag waver. I just don't do flag waving. It freaks me out, particularly... Like, I think I might have a phobia. I might need deliverance. Because when you're standing and that flag is just about flicking in front of your face and you're just thinking it's going to hit me and give me a blue eye, I've got to be careful here. And so you keep doing that. And I was in this worship session and I had a flag waver in front of me. And I'm trying to hold it together and in the midst of it, the Lord says to me, why don't you like this flag waver? Now, I know that when God asks you a question, it's not because he's looking for an answer. He is omniscient after all. So I know something's going to happen here. God is going to put his finger on an area of religion in my life that needs dealt with. And so the Father says to me, they're worshipping me out of a deep sincerity, and I love it. I delight in it. And then he says to me, you see that flag over there? I want you to worship me with the flag. I just sense the convicting power of the Holy Spirit coming upon some of you right now to become flag wavers. And so there I am thinking, oh, Lord Jesus, you can't expect me. I'm cool. I can't do this. I preached against this publicly. A half an hour later, I'm still having issues with Jesus. Eventually, I pick up the flag and wave the flag. Brothers and sisters, I tell you, religion creeps in so quickly and you can become judgmental about someone else's worship when it, thank you for the flag wave at the back. You can become judgmental about someone else's worship because actually the flame of love in your heart is just flickering, not roaring. And this woman is in this context and she looks like this Pharisee. And you know what happens when you worship in a crazy praise kind of way, is it exposes the true intents of your heart. And so what does Pharisee do? If only he knew. He sets himself up as a spiritual judge and discernment uh, barometer. If only he knew what, do you know about that woman's past? Do you know what she's done? I've been in those worship meetings where I'm looking at someone thinking, yeah, I know what you did this last week. You came and saw me in my office. I know. And there you are worshipping. We need to discipline you. We need to sort you out. She gets a crazy praise on. She breaks right through all of the incredible protocol. And she exposes the heart of religion in the Pharisees. One of the key things that the enemy will do and his design in these days is to shut down extravagant, lavish worship. He did it with Jesus and he'll do it with us. Because lavish worship and extravagant worship is the key to enjoying ongoing intimacy with the Father. And she breaks through the protocol and she does what she needs to do and she breaks this jar upon the feet of Jesus. She lets down her hair. I mean, can you imagine the fragrance that must have filled that room immediately? What's incredible about the story is that many people think that the most expensive thing she did was to break the alabaster jar upon his feet. That's not what was costly. What was costly is that she let down her hair. Because you see, in Jewish custom, a woman wasn't allowed to do that publicly. The only time she could was on the wedding night when she said to her husband, I am only yours. 
What's happening that makes this story so costly is that when she let down her hair, she looked at Jesus, and what she was saying is, in front of all of these men publicly, with the fear of being shamed and guilt putting on me, I want you to know I'm only yours. That's the kind of worship that I want to be. That's the kind of worshiper I want to be. That I don't care about who it is who's looking. But I let down my hair, my glory, my piety, my attempts at holiness, and I let it down and I say, I'm only yours. What's even more incredible in this story is that all the guilt and shame that was on her already because she was a prostitute, Jesus sits down and lets her worship him. At any moment, he could have said, woman, stop. You're embarrassing me, and this is shameful. Leave. He could have said that at any moment. And do you know what? He had every legal right, because he was the only one in that room that was fulfilling the law completely. And he had every right to say, woman, leave. Do not do this. And she would have walked out of that room with shame and guilt. She would have walked out of that room knowing the despair of the rejected lover. She would have known what it was like to walk out of the room with all eyes putting shame on her, putting guilt upon her. And everyone in Jerusalem would have been talking about that woman who tried to touch the rabbi, that woman who let down her hair in front of the rabbi and worshipped him. How shameful she is. How could she dishonor? And do you know what? The Pharisees would have been justified and said, oh, Jesus is one of us. He too is a judge. He, He too brings judgment the way we do. Oh, but mercy always triumphs over judgment. And what the Father does, what Jesus does is incredible. He allows her, with all of her shame and guilt, to worship him so that at the end of the evening, the focus is off her and her shame and guilt. And it's on the rabbi who let the woman touch him. Did you hear about that rabbi? That rabbi called Jesus? who allowed a woman to wash his feet and allowed a woman to let down her hair and worship him? Did you hear about the rabbi who let shame and guilt come upon him? What kind of a teacher is that? And that is the glory of the cross right there. That he died naked so he could take your shame and your guilt so that you could get your crazy praise on. So at the end of the day, The guilt and the shame that is rightfully yours is transferred from you to him. So whenever someone talks about you, they cannot talk about you except through the lens of the rabbi who took on your shame and guilt so that you walk free. That's the kind of worship we're called to. And at the end of the day, Jesus walks out as the one being spoken about. You know that sin that flashes back in your mind every time you worship him? Do you know that moment where you come under guilt and condemnation because of things you've done wrong? Jesus took that. He didn't just die for your sin, he died for your shame and your guilt. So you never have to live under the weight of shame and guilt. Do you know when the Bible talks about wholeness? It's not just physical wholeness. It's emotional and psychological wholeness too. It means that you live as if though the wounds of the past never ever happened to you. It means as though that moment when you were shamed, when you felt guilty, when you lived, and rightfully so. Now, when you come to him, takes it from you as if you've never lived under that before. Man alive, that's good news. We need some protocol-breaking worshippers. We need some worshippers who actually don't give a continental poop about anyone else. Because we've seen something of the one that we love. We've seen something of the one who takes our shame and guilt away. No condemnation, now I dread. 
I come to him because he's taking my shame and guilt. Do you know what gets me about the story, though? Not just the fact that she's saying to Jesus, you're the one that I love and I give it all to you. Not just the fact that he takes on the shame and the guilt of this woman, but what really gets me about this story is at the end of the evening, when everyone goes home and everyone's done their thing and had their little gossip and had their little talk about that woman and that man, there are two people who walk away smelling the same, Jesus and a prostitute. (laughs) That's the kind of worship I'm into. That because I've beheld him in his glory, I'm being changed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. Because that which you behold, you become like. (laughs) Man, this should just get you up on your feet, making you go crazy. It really should. Because when you worship him, when you encounter him, you smell like him. And the fragrance you release in your office place, the fragrance you release in your school, the fragrance you release in university and every place of influence should be the fragrance of a laid down lover, of someone who gets their crazy praise on. Because we smell like him. Because our guilt and shame has been removed. This single act of worship was so definitive in the mind of Jesus that he said this will be spoken of as a memorial for ages to come. He set that up as a memorial, as a place to remember what we're called to be like in worship. Stu, why don't you come up, just begin to play if you can. Do you get this? It means you're so lovesick for him. It means you're so overwhelmed by him. It means that you're so overcome by his beauty. That you cannot help yourself but respond to him and say, I love you. I must have more of you. I'm going to let down my hair because you and only you are the one that I love. Our warfare is not one that fights against flesh and blood. Our warfare is not one that is enemy focused. Our warfare flows out of intimacy. You see, Esther exposed the enemy because of her intimacy. We need some people who get their crazy praise on. We need some people who abandon themselves in worship. We need some people who get a little bit emotional again. Because last time I checked, my sins were forgiven. And the problem is that for many of you, you struggle with shame because the power of sin is in its secrecy. And because you've never understood what it's like to live an authentic life, a life where you know your sins are genuinely forgiven. Many of you have lived unable to worship him abandoned. Because in your mind, you're still covered by shame. You've still got a cloak of shame and guilt. When the Father says to you, I've made you brand new. If you're in sin, stop it. Simple. If you're walking under guilt and shame, talk to someone. Because you see, Honor operates in the context of authenticity. And there's some stuff in this church, not because I'm a prophet, but because all of us have been through some stuff that we need to start talking about. That we break the curse of secrecy and shame. 
So when we gather as a community, the lens I look through at you is not one of your past sin, but of your redeemed nature. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh any longer, but according to the Spirit. I found in our church back home at the King's Arms that the only way we get to do this is by authenticity. Because worship is an issue of the heart. And I want to give the pastoral team hard work this week. If you know there are particular sins or particular shame that you've been walking under for years, you need to talk to someone. I preached this sermon a few months ago in a context of students and a young lady came up in front of a group of about 50. She said, I've been abused and repeatedly raped by my father and I've never told anyone. But today, the shame is lifted. Immediately afterwards, a young man from Uganda got up and he said, my dad abandoned us when I was just seven or eight months old. And he begins to weep. And if you know anything about African men, they don't cry. And he says, I had to live under the shame of a single parent household. And I've never been able to relate to Father because of that. I've never been able to enjoy worship because of that. But today the guilt and shame is lifted. I was in Oxford last weekend, preaching this in the evening. And a young woman gets up and she says, I'm a missionary's kid. Family all in ministry. But we're messed up. And we need healing. And I've not been able to tell anyone. And I've had to put on a facade. Today, I feel free for the first time. I don't know what the issue is. For this woman, with all the guilt of sin and prostitution. And in a moment, Jesus said, I'll take that from you. I'll take the shame from you. So when you walk away from here, you smell like me. And the only thing you hear in your ears is your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. There's such joy and freedom in not having shame over you or guilt over you. So I'm going to ask you just to stand, shall we?